So tonight I chose for our scripture uh, this passage from Luke, um, primarily because we come to Jesus sitting in the temple. Um, it's a fun story, uh, which is, makes really great sermons. Um, we're not going to talk too much about it, but long story short is Jesus' family had been in Jerusalem for the Passover, and uh, there was a big crowd of folks, and so his family leaves with the big crowd of folks after the Passover, and Jesus... Well, they thought he was with somebody else in the family, and turns out Jesus stayed behind, and they went looking for him for three days, and finally find him in the temple, and what is he doing? He's sitting there asking questions. And tonight, um, we're doing something that's kind of an annual tradition for us called Faith Questions, which is basically, I've been taking questions over the last few weeks uh, that you have. And I've done my best to answer them, um, hopefully satisfactorily, and uh, hopefully not with uh, too much getting stuck in the weeds. But we're gonna, uh, we're gonna just kinda get started here. So our first question is a really fun one, um, presented by one of the youngest members of our community because she's eight. She's one of the folks from National who comes over and um, brings dinner uh, once a month. Um, and she asked the question, if God made us, who made God? Now, that is both an incredibly complicated and yet extremely simple question. Uh, it's a question that we've been asking as humanity for as long as humanity has been able to think and reason. Uh, and the simple answer is that God exists outside of time and space. Uh, if time is linear, so if time runs in a line, that means there's a beginning and an end. And God exists outside of that. God is, was, and ever shall be. Now, how we wrap our head around that is what makes this complicated. Because we exist in one time and one space at a time. And we can't exist in any other way. And yet God exists outside of all of that. It's like third dimension, fourth dimension, something else dimension. Uh, God is everywhere and all time and every space, always. And so when we start to ask the question, who made God? Well, that would mean God had to have a beginning. And well, God simply is. Now, I don't know how to explain that any better than that than to say that God is. God is, was, and ever shall be. Because we know Scripture tells us that at the beginning of the universe, God created the universe out of the void. We know science teaches us that the Big Bang, be, or the universe began with the Big Bang. Uh, I tend to think those two things probably happened some way simultaneously and that the universe began. But even then, there was a beginning. And what started all of that? And that was God. And what I find particularly comforting about that is that it means God is bigger than all things. God is bigger than even time and space, and God's love is stretching beyond all the borders of time and space, and it has absolutely no bounds. Now, I don't know if eight-year-old Margot would find that as a satisfactory answer, but, you know, God is, was, and ever shall be. That's kind of the answer. Uh, 
The next question was another fun one. Why did God create cockroaches? Now, this one, I, I, I admit I had a little fun with because it's kind of a fun question. Um, but it, it's still a serious answer. Uh, and I got four reasons why. Number one, the food chain. So there are lots of spiders and critters and things that eat roaches as part of their ecosystem. Uh, number two, this one's a little more directed at us um, in that they motivate us, and I don't know if this is the reason they were created, but they, they uh, are certainly uh, a side effect. They motivate us to clean because you know, typically when we leave food out or we're not cleaning up after ourselves, um, that is when we get roaches and nobody wants that. And so we remember to take out the trash in the AU lounge every week, right? Yes. Uh, three, they show God's creative side. Roaches show God's glory and creativity because think about it. Only God, the greatest and ultimate creator, could think up something like a cockroach. As undesirable as they are to most of us, if you really think about it, roaches are quite fascinating at their ability to survive. You know, there's that old joke, the only thing that'll be around after, uh, if we ever blow ourselves up, will be the Twinkies and the roaches. I don't know why, but they have an incredible ability to survive. Um, and finally, this one's my favorite. They show God's sovereignty. Because as much as we try to eradicate roaches from the face of the earth, they always come back. And that must mean there's some resiliency that God has built into them because God has a purpose for roaches. Even when I don't want them in my house or in the, in the basement or anywhere near me, there must be a purpose. So Margo's here. <laughs> um, the short answer to your question is that it's a really big question. And um, we've been trying to figure it out since the beginning of time. Uh, and the longer answer is that God is, was, and always will be. And that means God was before time and is after time and is outside of time. And God exists everywhere and always. And why and how that works, we don't really know. We just know it is. I know. It's, I told them that you probably wouldn't find that as a satisfactory answer. You can ask them. That's exactly what I said. Um, Question three. Um, this one's uh, definitely a little more serious, uh, and it, it's directed towards seniors, but it's definitely for everyone. Um, how do seniors figure out what God wants us to do next? My starting point for this is that God's ultimate desire for us is to live abundant life, in living with God and loving one another and also ourselves. As uh, people of faith, we spend our whole lives asking and re-asking this question. God, where do you want me to go? What is it you're calling me to do next? 
One of the stumbling blocks I've found that often comes up in trying to answer this question is the fear that we might choose the wrong path. Now, part of how I approach this question shifts that from wrong path and right path to there's not a singular path. At least there's not like a tightrope path that we're walking trying not to fall off. Instead, we're walking down a really broad road. And there are lots of different ways that God can call us to be at work in the world. And there are lots of different things that we uh, can be called to do. Ultimately, God desires to walk us to walk a path that invites us to live the principles that I've been preaching about for the last three weeks. So if you missed any of those, they're all online. Um, of do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. So whatever it is that we are doing, God is calling us to live within those principles. Um, you know, there's the, the, the saying that God knows the desires of our hearts, and God does. God uh, knows our desires, and those are the desires that match with what God wants us to do. Because ultimately what God wants for us is abundant life. And abundant life looks like doing no harm, doing good, and staying in love with God. So those two things together mean making the choices of what's next. We don't have to worry as much about is this the right job to take or is this the wrong job to take? Should I do this program or that program? Because ultimately, if we're living into those principles, then we are following God's path for us. And then it's just a matter of trying to make our best choice. So don't worry, I have a little more to it than that. Um, first thing you want to do when you're beginning any time, type of discernment is to spend time in prayer, um, to read scripture. Um, and most importantly, the, this is probably the thing that I struggle with the most, uh, sit and be quiet and listen. Because listening for the voice of God is not easy. It's often that still faint voice that sometimes we think we hear but we're not sure. And it's only in sitting and listening and being still and quiet that we can really hear that voice. So that's the first place to start. Then we start by looking at what are the options before us. And we weed out any options that we think might do harm or are not doing good or might pull us away from staying in love with God. Okay, so we have, we're, we're eliminating options now. We're looking at, okay, what are just the things that are going to live out these principles? And after we've done all of this, now we've gathered a good amount of data, uh, which... Um, I was a poli-sci major, so I like data, because it tells me things. So I gather all the data, and then I'm asking these questions. Okay, so what is the best thing for me? And sometimes then we still don't have an answer. So then we turn to those who are closest to us. Um, our friends, our family, um, our spiritual advisors, our mentors. Um, these aren't just going to be people who are going to tell you to take the job that makes the best salary. It's not the person that's going to tell you to take the job that is going to take you the farthest, but it's the person that's going to say, what is the best job or program or next step 
Um, so I'm kind of sticking to those kind of narratives because that's generally where everyone is in this time of life. This can apply to any decision making. But um, whatever it is decision you're making, looking through uh, these folks are the ones who are hopefully going to know your values and know those values of doing no harm, doing good, and staying in love with God. And hopefully they can advise you in the best way they see you might be able to go. And even then, you might not still have an answer. And so then it's kind of time to begin to turn to yourself. And this is the part that we don't really like because sometimes it is as simple as just making a choice. Because just making a choice seems like, but that's not the answer. But sometimes it really is just making a choice among equal options. But also taking and turning to yourself and saying, what gives me the most excitement? What do I most, am I most passionate about doing? What do I think I can bring unique things to? And so after all of that, hopefully you'll kind of have a gut reaction and be able to make a decision. And I want to give a disclaimer. That doesn't mean you're never going to make the wrong choice. Uh, for many reasons, our judgment can be clouded, influence, uh, and that can influence our choices, and sometimes we can make the best possible choice with all the information available, and it's still not the best choice uh, in the end because of something we didn't know. And you know, that's part of life. Sometimes we take a step and we hope for the best, and it doesn't necessarily turn out right. But then we take what we've learned from that, and next time we're doing this process of discernment, of asking God, where are you calling me to be next? And use that information to continue to ask that question, where is God calling me to be, to do the most good, to do the least harm, to stay as close in love with God as I can be? So remember, it's not really about finding the tightrope path but walking down the broad road and ultimately trusting that no matter what you choose, God is going to be with you. So this is a, a fun question um, that's a little historically based. Um, what are the arguments for and against the inclusion of the deuterocanonical apocryphal books of the Roman Catholic Bible? And why doesn't our Bible have these books? So there's a simple answer for this one as well, and the short answer to that is history. Uh, and mostly comes down to disagreements uh, about what should and should not be in the canon. Um, the canon being that which is mostly mutually agreed upon text that we call the Bible. Uh, and while the Apocrypha is not in, is in most Roman Catholic Bibles, we can also find it in Protestant Bible versions as well, because I have several on my shelf that have it. So it's not all Protestant Bibles. Um, but by and large, the, what we call now the Bible, especially what we call that in the Protestant Church without the Apocrypha, um, came about in 1546 uh, at the Council of Trent. Uh, the Apocrypha was a set of books that uh, came from historical texts, um, but 
none of them were written in the last thousand years that we know of. So they were newer texts, but not really new texts, if that makes sense. I think I said that wrong there. So 1546, they're looking at like, what's going to be in and what is going to be out. Um, Basically, it came, boiled down to a problem of veracity of the books. Uh, for one, uh, some, they were, some of them were something called pseudepigrapha, which is a really fancy theological word, which means um, I wrote it uh, using somebody else's name. And most of the time, that's because you were following, like I might write a book um, uh, to so-and-so from Paul faithful follower of Christ and it'd be written in the style of Paul and it wouldn't it wouldn't be so much trying to pretend to be Paul as much as paying homage it was it was something that would have been acceptable in those times and yet some of them were written hundreds of years after Paul's death and so then there becomes questions was this really Pauline theology and can we trust this was this person really someone uh, who is worthy of having their writings elevated to the level of the canon? So there was that, and then there was uh, folks like Martin Luther or uh, the Catholic father or church father Jerome, who uh, they favored excluding the apocryphal books and uh, as being worthy of called scripture though they didn't feel they were completely worthless. They thought they were important, um, that we can learn things from them, but they felt like, you know, I don't think it rises to the same level. Uh, and so, it, again, this is a bit of complex history and understanding church politics um, of why certain things got in and certain things didn't. And a lot of it really was people made decisions about this book's going to be in and this book's not. Um, but if, you, if you've heard about the Gospel of Thomas, this would be a great example of something that is not in our canon. And uh, the argument against it being a part of the canon um, is one we didn't find it for a very long time. And when we did, we found that it didn't really bring anything new to the Gospels. And it also had some things that we felt might be a little counter to what the other Gospels teach. And so the general idea was, this is, not that it's not, this is not that this is a book that we should never read or we should ban or anything like that, but it just doesn't rise to the level of scripture. And so the long and short is that is pretty much the whole reason we have the books of the Apocrypha, is because we just felt like they weren't quite to the level of scripture. I hope that answers that question. <coughs> mm. It's going to be a wonderful sound on the, uh, on the recording there. <clears throat> uh, the next question, how did rabbis interpret the Old Testament in Christ's day, and how did this older interpretation influence the reception of Jesus' teachings compared to how we receive them today? Um, so this is another <laughs> really technical question. Uh, and I'm really going to try hard not to get caught in the weeds because I actually find this kind of stuff really fascinating when we look at, well, what, how did they interpret it then? How do we interpret it now? How does that affect how we understand things? Um, 
so uh, the first thing I want to uh, talk about is that there were four primary groups in the first century Jewish communities. Um, the, there was the major radical move, political movement in Palestine that was led by the Zealots. These were the folks that wanted to forcibly overthrow Rome. They were, they were the ones that would, um, on a number of occasions, take up arms literally against the Roman soldiers and try to, um, by violence, overthrow uh, the Roman Empire. Um, so there was that group, and then there were three other groups that were more political, socio-economical groups. Um, zealots kind of were across the spectrum in who they would involve. Uh, the other three groups were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. Um, Sadducees were identified with mostly the upper class and the, up, and the economic, uh, upper economic echelon of Judean society. Um, as a whole, this sect fulfilled uh, various political, social, and religious roles, including they maintained the temple. Uh, the Sadducee or the Pharisees uh, were um, a political party of sorts, uh, but also a social movement and a school of thought in the Holy Land. Uh, during the Second Temple Judaism. Um, it was after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE that the Pharisaic beliefs kind of became the foundational liturgical and ritualistic basis for the rabbinic Judaism. Um, much of what we know as Judaism today comes directly from that, uh, or at least evolved from that. Now, this is also the group that Jesus mentions a lot. Um, I talked to our Hillel friends um, to kind of get their perspective on this, and one of the things that they said to me was um, there was two kinds of law for Jews in the first century. There was the written law, which is the Torah, uh, the first five books of the, uh, what we call the Old Testament. So that was written, that was pretty much, it's written, it's, it is law, we don't argue about this, this is just is. Um, but then there was the oral law, which was kind of everything that came after that. Uh, and so a lot of what when Jesus would argue with the Pharisees about, he was arguing um, with them on points of oral law, because Jesus really didn't argue too much with the written law. Uh, so that was that group. That, by the way, is a group that gets a bad name a lot of times. We like to think of them as the bad guys, because they're always on the other side of the argument with Jesus. Uh, oh, really? Already? Um, that was my 20-minute sign, so. <laughs> um, so long story short is uh, they were also um, about keeping the Jewish faith pure um, and uh, in touch with its roots, um, particularly as uh, Hellenization, so the process of um, Hellenization basically became the foundations of what we know as Western culture. Uh, it came out through uh, Alexander the Great, the Greeks took it up, and then the Romans kind of took over for them, and they helped spread it everywhere. But it was this process of modernization, if you will, um, right at the beginning of the first century uh, that was going on. It was, I mean, it's happening before that, it, but that whole time frame. Um, and there was this push to be like the Greeks, to be like the Romans. And the Pharisees were saying, but we're Jewish. And this is our identity, and this is who we are. And we need to hold strong to this. Uh, and so that's part of the reason they're also a little stubborn in Scripture. Uh, the last group was the Essenes. This is a group that's a little more of the mystical Jewish tradition. Uh, so 
they, they were a group that later on, after Jesus' time, would pull away from, um, from society and live among themselves as just uh, their own community dedicated to discipline life, uh, voluntary poverty, and uh, daily immersion. Uh, they also tended to have more of an eschatological, so a looking towards the end uh, and how all of things come together in God uh, beliefs. So you've got these four very kind of different groups that are among Jewish thought. You also have just all of the regular people who were just Jewish, uh, who were, you know, getting up daily and doing all the things they had to do. They were observing the Sabbath. They were keeping kosher. Um, but beyond that, they weren't too involved in the political, religious uh, formation of the time. They were just trying to live their lives. So when we ask the question, what did first century Jewish communities think about scriptures, the answer is there wasn't one idea. Um, in fact, there's never really been just one idea. Um, Much like today, if you look at Jewish communities, and you know, we have five or six major traditions here in the United States that have varying degrees of what they follow and uh, what they hold as the most important things. Um, it's, it was just like that back then. And all of those different areas influenced in different ways. And the truth is that as Judaism was uh, sending the diaspora um, in 70 CE, they were also uh, forced to, uh, Angela, what's the word? Assimilate. Angela helped me with the word earlier today. I couldn't think of it. They were forced to kind of assimilate into their own, into the cultures of the places they were moving into. Um, Another thing that Hillel, our Hillel friends shared with me was um, if you go through a lot of suburban neighborhoods where there's Jewish congregations um, and you see, especially among the Reformed tradition, uh, Hebrew congregation, it was because you had the Methodist congregation and the Presbyterian congregation and you had the Hebrew congregation. It was not so much that they were changing who they were, but just how they were identified to the outside world. Um, it wasn't that they weren't Jewish anymore, but that all shifted and changed. Now, all of that, how did that affect how we understand it? And the simple answer is, we affected them, they affected us. As we were forming our tradition in the first century, they were, um, and it was really the second and third century when they were forming what we now know as modern Judaism. And so there was this influence on each other and we learned from each other. And there's also the fact that Christianity has also taken off in its own way, and we now interpret Scripture on our own. And the way the first century Christians would have interpreted um, the Old Testament text is probably a little different than we would have interpreted it today just because of time and scholarship. And, you know, we've had 2,000 years to think about things through the lens of Jesus. And the lens of Jesus, of course, affects how we see Scripture. Um, and so the long and short of that answer is, uh, that's a good question. Um, I have two more questions. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and go with this one, if that's all right with folks. Um, how can God be all-powerful in ultimate control and there is still so much evil and injustice in the world? 
This is again another question with a short and long answer. And I'm going to try and stick here so I don't wander away from my text. Um, the short answer is free will. God has given us one of the greatest gifts, the ability to determine our own paths, to make choices for ourselves. And I personally believe that we as a creation were created good, but I believe we as individuals were created neutral. God created us with the ability to do profound good and destructive evil. And we were given the option of choosing to walk whichever path we, cho we choose with, e with each choice that we make. Now, lots of things can influence how we get to a certain path or why we take a certain way. Um, and sometimes it might even seem like there's no choice at all. But the starting point for all of us is neutral. And ultimately, God has given us that starting point of deciding for ourselves of making the choice for ourselves. Am I going to be good? Or am I, going, am I going to do good? Or am I going to do evil? So why does God give us the ability to choose? Well, God desires for us to choose relationship with God. But along with this ability to choose God means we can also choose against God. It means we can be greedy and we can be selfish and we can be hateful and we can be harmful if we choose those paths. It also means the inverse is true, and we can also choose to do absolutely extraordinary good. Uh, just, there's oftentimes in the news all the bad stuff, and sometimes it feels like all the good stuff doesn't really get covered very much. But there is so much good that happens in the world. We don't always see it, in fact, a lot of times the good stuff that happens aren't the things that everybody's bragging about because, you know, we don't necessarily need to brag about the good we do. We just do good because it's the right thing. And so we have the ability to do incredible good. But in order for us to have the ability to do incredible good, we have to be able to choose to do the opposite. So why does injustice and evil exist in the world? It's because God gives us the ability to choose. Not because God desires for it, but because in order for God to stop it, God would have to violate this gift of free will. Now I know that this probably doesn't seem to satisfy. It certainly doesn't really satisfy me on why evil exists in the world. Um, but there's some comfort in that. And the comfort is that God knows the worst of all of humanity. God knows the absolute worst of us. And God, in the form of Jesus, experienced some of the worst of humanity on a cross. Jesus died on a cross and then overcame death and in resurrection did something incredible. Jesus still loved us. Jesus still cared for us. Jesus still was willing to forgive us, even after we hung him on a cross and left him to die. My comfort in that, in, in this whole thing, is that in the midst of all of the bad, Jesus overcame death, Jesus overcame sin, Jesus overcame evil. And so that gives me hope. 
while it might take us a long, long time to get there, I have hope and faith that we will get there. That there will be a time when there is no more evil, when there is no more injustice. And one day we will get there. Uh, so I have one more question. I really think I should close this out because it's, it's a good one too. It's about Satan. And why do Christians <laughs> believe in the devil? Um, so what I'm going to do is we're going to have this posted. Um, I might try to record this last little bit onto this. Uh, but... Uh, Thank you, everyone, for your questions. I, there's not really a wrap-up to this because it's, it's just questions. So um, with this, I think I'm going to hand it over to Rick. <laughs>